This episode is brought to you by stamps.com. If you are a small business owner, you know how much hard work and effort goes into maintaining a small business. I know because I am an indie podcaster. So, if you've got a small business, you know that there is nothing more valuable than your time. So stop wasting it on trips to the post office. Stamps.com makes it easy to mail and ship right from your computer. Stamps.com basically brings the services of the US Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're in an office sending invoices, a side hustle, Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and standard printer. No special supplies or equipment and within minutes, believe you me, within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. There is no risk. And with my promo code POD, P-O-D, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in POD, P-O-D. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. I don't need a bunch of white people at Simon & Schuster or HarperCollins taking little gifts out of their basket and giving it to me for diversity and inclusion. That's not it. What we do need is for these companies to decolonize, to dismantle, to deconstruct, to start shifting power, to start shifting power. And what that means actually is white people need to step aside. Hello to all our listeners. I hope you're all well and enjoying fall colors. I am obsessed with this season because there is so much to love. Crisp air, especially in the mornings. No allergies. Seriously, guys, I had so many problems with allergy season this year and I'm so glad it's over. Fingers crossed. And then shopping, right? I mean, who doesn't want to buy nice boots, jeans, and a beautiful wool coat? And I am really excited about shopping this season because I am already eyeing a couple of nice sweaters. But anyways, before I digress to talking about my shopping, I want to introduce our guests. Today, we are continuing our discussions on representation with Saira Rao and Jess Regal. I'm sure some of you recognize Saira's name because we've collaborated with her a few times. And you know what? Every time we have Saira on our Immigrantly platform, we get such a great response. Now, granted, Saira does make people uncomfortable. White women aren't at 101 around whiteness. They're at like 0.101. White people, good white people, quote, and I put good in quotes, Hmm. good white people do not see themselves as the problem. It's always somebody that's not them. White people live in white cocoons. Mm -hmm. If everybody you associate with is white, 
how can you see your own racism? How can you see your own whiteness? How can you, you can't see the air mm-hmm. that we breathe. But it's good uncomfortable. It's important uncomfortable. She is an advocate, the co-founder of Race to Dinner, an organization that holds discussions about white complicity over dinner and the author of White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better. I love the title. We are also joined by her literary agent, Jessica Regal, who is the founder of Helm Literary, a full-service literary agency with the goal of helping writers take control of their careers. And for those who don't know, Jess is a white woman. We covered a lot of topics during this interview. Topics like racism in the publishing industry, how our views are continuing to evolve, and what white complicity really means. So let's get started. Thank you. To both of you ladies, I am so excited to be talking to you today. How's everything? Good. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it is a pleasure to be here. I don't know if things are good, but it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so, Sarah, we've had you on our show before, on our episode with Regina, which was titled Raise Your Hand If You're a Racist. And then we had another conversation in March, which was basically released in June. So this is your third time. I'm really excited. But before we bring Jess into the conversation, I just want to get an idea of what has changed for you since we last spoke in terms of your ideas on racism, complicity, and privilege. Has anything evolved since March? Gosh, I mean, what is it now? We're in September. I think things are just getting worse and worse. That's what I think. I mean, I think that uh, white liberals, white progressives are digging their heels even further into their fuckery. Uh, I think that just objectively look at what's happening. I mean, look at Afghanistan. What did we do in Afghanistan? Look at what we're doing to Haitian refugees. I mean, it's disgusting. It's not even there's there's not even a sense of pretending to care about mm. black and brown people anymore. So the facade of the black box and the Black Lives Matter signs has given way to whipping Haitian people and um, mm. literally leaving um, Afghan people to die, people who helped us for 20 years to die. Uh, it's it's open warfare against people of color. And frankly, Sadia, it's open warfare against everybody, white people too. I mean... Uh, white supremacy kills everybody, including white people. And we're it's, mm. it's happening. It's not like things are getting bad. Things are horrible. Things are horrible. The snapshot, mm. uh, things are horrible. And that doesn't even account for climate catastrophe, which is um, completely linked with white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism. So I, I feel worse and worse every day. I, I mean that. And, and I'm still functioning, right? I'm still sitting here and having my third, the dreaded third cup of coffee, which is, by the way, not a charm. <laughs> Just FYI, the third uh. cup of coffee is not a charm. Um, and trying to make it through to the end of the day without, you know, falling apart in in whatever way. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw, but my friend Fred Joseph, who's a black man who wrote a beautiful book called The Black Friend, 
was walking mm-hmm. his dog with his black fiance, lovely woman in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, you know, ground zero for progressive activism. And a white lady comes wow. and accosts them and tells them to go back to their hood. And he, you know, took yeah. a video, put it up. She's been, her name is Emma Sarley. It doesn't matter. It could be Kelly. It could be Becky. It could be Jess. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, she's just, you know, nameless, mm-hmm. faceless white lady. She's been fired. Great. You know, but in the past couple of days, Fred and his fiance have been receiving death threats for calling it out. I mean, it's just horrible. It's horrible. You know, it's just, it's horrible. So that's where I stand. Saina, what gives you hope though? Nothing. I mean, I'll be honest, like the Nothing. reason that I feel like mm. uh, someone said to me this summer that like, if you can detach yourself from outcomes and do what you can do to keep yourself honest, I, this is the only thing I can do now is this work. That's it. I like that. It's I like, uh, like that. keep yeah. your hands as clean as possible. Keep your, you know, your humanity as clean as possible. Uh, I get through each day cause I have to, cause I've got two kids and I have to pick them up from school and, and take them to school and feed them. Uh, but in terms mm. of hope, uh, is there hope if, if that, that Congress that literally can't even, you know, pull their heads out of their asses for two seconds are gonna shut down the, you know, the six companies that are destroying the planet primarily? Is there hope for that? No, mm. no, because Kirsten Cinema right now is hosting a bunch of like corporations for a fundraiser rather than voting on this bill, this infrastructure bill, which doesn't even do nearly what it needs to do. So the only hope I have is for continuing to like do what I can do to get through each day and feel okay about myself. But in terms of change, I don't have very much hope. I don't know. What about you two? Why don't we bring Jess into the conversation? Jess, what do you think? I agree with everything that Sarah just said. I, I think for me, working in book publishing, the things that give me hope are publishing books that I believe in that are spreading a message of change and the books that we're doing for children that tells the truth about history, the books that we're, we're doing on the adult nonfiction side that you know speaks to white women about their own racism and how they can do better. I, my work gives me hope, but no, I mean, when I look at what's happening in the world, you know, it, it has gotten worse. I, you know, after, Trump was elected out of office. Definitely, I was like that white woman with rose-colored glasses that was like, okay, things are going to get better now and <laughs> there's going to be some improvements. And, you know, I'm a huge, you know, I was very much a Kamala Harris supporter. And, you know, I was talking to Sarah the other day and where, what is she doing? Where is she? What has happened? It's this, you know, we, we talked about, you know, it was like, she's the, she's a token. She drew us white women, white people in, liberals in to get our vote. And then nothing has changed. It's pretend. It's like, it's, it's that front of change, but there's no real change. That's so true. Now, just we met via email when Saira introduced us. And to be honest, you had quite the introduction because Saira introduced you as someone who's been very honest about her complicity in white Mm -hmm. supremacy right can you expand on that well I can say it took me some time of working with Syrah before (laughs) I I got to a place where I was able to speak about it in a way that just able to speak about it I'm a white woman from Iowa I grew up surrounded by white people I moved to New York to go to college and to work in publishing and and then was surrounded by mostly white liberals and a, a few people of color, but mostly, you know, publishing predominantly white, affluent white. And, 
you know, again, it was that facade of being a liberal feeling like, well, you're not racist. Everyone else is, you know, those people are racist, but not you, right? And it really was my work with my work with Syra that I was able to start recognizing how white supremacy, how it's inherent in me and how it's been baked into my whole being and ways in which it, it shows itself and rears its ugly head and ways in which I can point it out and, and other people around me too. Do you find yourself still in situations where, where you're complicit? Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. Probably, probably daily. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I was just, I have a friend in town, we were driving through, I'm in Durham, North Carolina, we're driving through neighborhoods. And, you know, as we're driving, I'm like, oh, this is the shitty neighborhood. And as I was saying it, I fully recognize that that was racist and a white supremacist statement, right? Because I didn't say ghetto, I didn't say ghetto, but that doesn't make it any better. We all know what shitty neighborhood means. I'm so glad you said that because I feel like the most difficult thing to do is check your own racism. And by the way, every one of us has inherent racism, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just white people, it's people of color. I check it every day. I have to be cognizant of the fact that I may say something or do something that is basically racist, although I may not recognize it as such, right? Talking about publishing industry, um, that's something that I want to dig deep into. I know it's not the immediate thing that comes to mind when we talk about media representation, you know, but it's definitely important to talk about publishing. Can you map out for us the dynamic of representation in the publishing industry in general? You know, so the majority of agents and editors are, are white. The majority of writers are still white. Five years ago, I think the tide started to shift for own voices, you know, people of color writing about their own experiences and white people not writing about outside of their experience so a white person not writing a person of color for example became mm. more of the norm I think before that it was a situation where any writer no matter what their background was could write anything right especially when it mm. comes to fiction because fiction is by its very nature creating fictional characters so why why can't a white person write a brown character or a black character or an lgbtq character mm. But over the years, it, it is very slowly getting better to the place where, you know, people are recognizing why that's problematic and actively trying to change that. I think also there was a there was a long period where, and this is actually still true. I'd get passes on projects because publishers would say something like, "Oh, well, we already have our Indian American book, hmm. right? We hmm. already have our book on slavery." right? We don't need another as if, you know, there's only, there's only one <laughs> as if white mm -hmm. people don't have a hundred different books about, I don't know, George Washington, right? right. Like <laughs> George Washington about socks. You know, white people get to write about blue socks about <laughs> and red socks and green <laughs> socks because each color written by a white person is super interesting. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I, I think slowly that's getting better, but it's still, it's still a really big problem. And also, I mean, there's, there's the issue of what publishers have allowed people of color to write about. I think, mm. you know, 10 years ago, it was a lot of trauma, right? It was like, if you, if you were a person of color, you were gonna be writing about your trauma. 
in one way or yeah. another. And we're starting to see more and more books that are uh, focused more on joy than on, on trauma. It's so slow. I mean, it's, it's really incremental. I had a call yesterday with a white woman who's a documentary filmmaker who, and obviously not publishing, but the IP is the IP, the, the intellectual property. And the documentary is a highly financed documentary by a company. And it's about chattel slavery ships. 10 people, 10 people on the documentary team. Guess how many black people are on that team? Just guess. Zero. One. Nine white people and one black person. This is post George Floyd. So when we say things are getting better, like let's, and I guess here's the good, the good thing is um, this white woman has gone through our race to dinner program and she, our race to community program rather, and she's actually walking away from the project, um, having a conversation with the white director and plans to actually do a video um, about the whole experience mm. and her complicity. So there's no throwing other people under the bus. This is why on earth did she think that she should be, you know, she's one of the 10 best people in that room to tell that story. So I guess that's the, that's the success piece of it. Um, but the movie is still coming out. And the truth is um, only one black person got to be a part of telling the story of black history. Absolutely. And to Jess's point earlier about trauma, I think that's happening. In fact, that happens all the time. We're seeing that with Afghan refugees the only images that you see uh, in the media, the kind of conversations that we are having as if Afghan people don't have an agency and there has to be this white savior narrative woven into the whole conversation about the war itself, right? Absolutely. So when editors make choices or when they edit books, do you think they can edit books that are not... of that are not really their lived experiences. How do they do that? And that goes back to, you know, the industry being predominantly white. So how can a white person know my lived experience? I think that they can. I've definitely edited work that is outside of my own experience. I think the thing that, that they have to come at the project with is a lot of humility and a lot of recognizing that maybe they don't know best in every situation. I mean, when I edit something, if I were to edit something that is from a white middle-class perspective, I edit that person in a very different way than when I edit something that like Cyrus sends me or something that, you know, another person of color sends me. I'm, I'm actually working on a project now about a uh, black teacher, a, a novel about a black teacher uh, teaching as the only black teacher in a, a white school. And mm. when I'm editing her, you'll my comments are very much more of like, you know, again, a lot of humility, a lot of this didn't make sense to me, but tell me if I'm missing something here. Tell me if I didn't understand what you meant by this phrase, or if this is an, ex you know, like this is a natural response that you would have had. Hmm. It doesn't ring true to me, but maybe it rings true to you. Let's talk about it, right? It's more of that right. kind of editing than it is like, make this character more likable, right? Like that type of editing. So it, it really is approaching it in a way that recognizes, which is a, hard for a lot of white people to do that and especially when you've been in the industry for so long I've been in this industry for almost 20 years now so I am an expert I feel like an expert but there are times when you have to approach a project and recognize like yes I'm an expert in publishing and yes I know how to plot something and I know writing but 
I'm not an expert in everyone's experience. So I, you have to come at it with a certain level of accepting that you don't know everything. The first thing Jess said was the critical piece. Can white people edit non-white characters? Of course they can. But she said, are we the best? No, you're not. You never will be. So just like men are never going to, Wally Lamb, whatever the fuck that book was he wrote like a billion years ago, everyone's like, oh my God, look (laughs) at him. He can write women. Women can write women better than men can write women, right? However, it's if you look at the way oppression works, women can absolutely write male characters better than male characters can because when you're below the person, you know that person better than they know themselves because you've had to navigate it. So, Sadia, you and I could write a white woman character better than Jess can because we know Jess better than she does. We do. You have to, to survive. Black women could write you and I, all three of us better, right? And so if you're an expert in a white supremacy institution, which you absolutely are, Jess, you are an expert. You're an expert editor. Mm -hmm. You're an expert agent. Does that make you the best person? Of course not, because a person who's closest to uh, the story is going to be the best person. But Jess and I have worked together on lots of projects where, you know, several years ago before I think your awakening commenced, uh, you know, we had this, we had this art, it was an argument and I was the only non-white person in that room and I got beaten down, but like, you know, I want the best, I want the best ghostwriter for this project. And in that case, it happened to be, in their opinion, it was a white woman. And my point was, there's literally no way a white woman's going to be the best writer for a story that the the main character is a kid of color and I got laughed out of that room and back to things have changed Jess is a hundred percent changed I mean you would never do that now um not just because it's the right thing to do but you recognize that the person you know that the person who is represented right. in the story should write the story it makes for a better story Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this is a great segue into the question I was going to ask both of you. Now, Saira, you're a writer of color who is represented by a white woman, Jess, mm-hmm. right? Has your relationship evolved over time? You go first, Jess. Well, it's definitely evolved over time. Absolutely. It's, it is, it's evolved mm-hmm. over time. I think the more and more honest Saira and I were able to be with each other, the more and more honest I was able to be with her, the more and more she was able to to feel safe talking to me about things, the better our relationship got. Uh, To her point though, I mean, an Indian American agent probably would be better for her, probably. But but the sad reality Mm. is there's not many of them out there, (laughs) right? Mm. Right? Like (laughs) I can think of one off the top of my head. Yeah. Right? So So what do you think? I think it's been, like, I would say our relationship is one of the few true success stories of my lifetime, for sure. We've known each other for well over Aww. a decade. And it was hard. I mean, like, it was horrible for a while. You know, like, I was not being listened to. Like, here's the thing. Again, when you look at oppression, it's like being honest with each other, right? White people, when they're just being honest, they're just being themselves, which is like treating us as lesser, which was happening all the time. The honesty piece is when the person on the receiving end um, is able to express how they're feeling and not be tone police, gaslit, beaten down. And that was happening a lot. Um, I think that the turning point, frankly, at least from my perspective, is after I ran for Congress and lost, um, we had that one conversation, Jess, with that publisher, white lady, who um, we were trying to sell 
my memoir around the whole experience. And just FYI, in my previous, in one of my previous nine billion lives, um, I was a lawyer. I was a fancy lawyer. I went to a fancy law school. I clerked for a, a judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. I wrote opinions that are still being quoted by the Supreme Court, which is no great shakes. Nothing to brag about at this point. Um, but I know constitutional law. Like, I know it well. And we get on this call, and this white lady tells me she doesn't think that my strategy is sound. And I'm like, What's, tell me what you're talking about. She basically wanted to talk to me just to tell, have a per private conversation um, dressing me down. And she said, I think your strategy is all wrong. What your, what your real strategy should be is trying to push for a constitutional amendment. And I'm writing an op-ed that I'm hoping to get published in the New York Times. And I paused and I said, um, are you a constitutional lawyer? No. Did you, did you study? Are you, did you go to law school? No. You're aware of my background in, in law? Yes. So you're sitting here white-splaining constitutional amendments to somebody wow. who actually knows constitutional law. And I said, I'm done. I'm actually, I'm getting off the phone now. Jess, you can stay on the phone. I honestly believe, just based on my track record with Jess in the past, that she was going to call me and just say, like, I'm done. Like, I'm done. I can't take this anymore with you. And she didn't do that. I was appalled. I, I felt terrible. I felt very much responsible for getting you on that call and having that happen to you. I think that was the first time I had seen it's so blatant. There's no way I, I was not going to stand by your side after seeing that and seeing that, that that's what you experienced all the time. So let's talk about representation and diversity. And I know, Syrah, you don't like the term diversity. Every time you're on my show, I feel like I learn something new, um, sometimes uncomfortable, but it's it's good uncomfortable, right? So I've been using this term diversity. I use it still, right? You are not comfortable with it. You think it is, it sets white people as default. Can you elaborate on it? And is there a different moniker that we should be using to talk about inclusive spaces? Um, sure, I'm happy to go first. And then Jess, I would really love for you to talk a lot about this, um, if you're cool with it. Yes, that's basically it. Nothing makes my skin crawl more than hearing people talk about diverse characters or diverse people. Like, how am I a diverse person? How are you a diverse person, Sadia? But Jess is not, because Jess is the default. Jess is white, right? That's really it in a right. nutshell. I mean, the, the work here is is racializing everybody, right? It's like, it's everybody mm -hmm. is racialized. So you know, you're Pakistani American, I'm Indian American. When white people see us, we're Asians. We're just a bunch of Asians or, or terrorists, right? Mm. Like terrorists, Asians, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> ignoring the fact that India and Pakistan has its own fuckery, um, thanks to the British, the white British colonizers, right? That That's also there. But so as long, until and unless we start racializing, you know, every time, Jess is white. Jess is a white person. Jess is a white woman. I'm an Indian mm. woman. I'm a brown woman. You're a brown woman. You're a pocket. Like mm. that, mm. until we start doing that, nothing will change. As long as white is always the default, nothing will change. So that's what diversity is, right? It's, it's diversity and inclusion mm. is actually just ironing in white supremacy. And the same friend who I talked to this summer who said, like, all you can do is keep your hands clean. 
she said the same thing. She said that DEI now is like, in, in her mind, um, a way of just saying the N-word. Like that's how bad DEI is. So hmm. unless you're hmm. dismantling, I don't need a bunch of white people at Simon & Schuster or HarperCollins taking little gifts out of their basket and giving it to me for diversity and inclusion. That's not it. What we do need is for these companies to decolonize, to d dismantle, to deconstruct, to start shifting power to start shifting power. And what that means actually is white people need to step aside. You know, white men, absolutely, but also white women need to start stepping aside and, and bringing in women of color to have these jobs of power, you know, editorial jobs, acquiring jobs, publisher jobs, not these little piddly jobs, but jobs where they actually have power and, and are empowered and not the only person in the room, not the token, who has to just be there to say they've got the diversity quotient, but someone who has power. And by the way, not every black person's gonna agree. Not every Asian person is gonna agree. You know, not every white person agrees, right? So why do they, they even get to have diversity of thought? We don't. And so that's, that's where I stand on it. You know, you bring up such an important point because what really intrigued me about your conversation was how all of us view diversity, right? So for me, the first thing before I read your conversation that came to my mind when I thought of diversity was racial diversity, right? So we are in a way erasing socioeconomic diversity, cognitive diversity, sexual diversity. We've just reduced it to one, which is race. And that in itself can be problematic because then, as you said, it's setting default as white people, right? To your point about how do we make that shift? I feel like currently we see this dominant paradigm which blinds us to the idea that populations are racialized in the U.S., right? You know, there is no conversation or very little conversation about how racialized America is in general, right? Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I hadn't actually known Syra's position on the word diversity, but I do agree. I think, you know, when you look at it through the publishing lens, like saying, oh, you know, they're publishing diverse books, it's separating them from the default white books, right? And why should the default be white? Like you can have that diversity <laughs> within the white space, like as many books on white people, family drama as possible, but if it's a it's a if it's a family of color and that it's their drama, it's immediately categorized as its own thing. It's it's in a similar way, women in the publishing industry really hate the concept of women's fiction, right? There's a big discussion over why should it be called women's fiction? It's all just fiction, but that's also true of diverse books. It's also just fiction. I want to play devil's advocate for a moment. Now some people may say, oh, US is predominantly white. So that's why default should be white people. How do you respond to that, Zyra? First of all, the numbers are shifting very rapidly. So what you're seeing right now unfolding is, you know, white panic over losing. Um, right. And by the way, we're not minorities. We're global majority. Like, let's just be clear, right? Like black and brown people are global majority um, and rapidly becoming the majority in this country. However, that doesn't mean suddenly white supremacy goes away. Whiteness 
always survives. So let's not forget that the Irish were not considered white. Italian folks were not considered white. Jewish people were not considered white until it, it made sense to, to defer whiteness upon them. So whiteness will always prevail. What do I say about that? I say that it's a big lie, right? It's why is it? So right now, technically, yes, we're still a majority white numbers wise country. Where did the white people come from? Where do the white people come from? You know, they're not indigenous. White people are not indigenous. So let's be clear about this country. Let's, it's, it's very new country. You don't have to go very far back. It's genocide of indigenous people. It is slavery and genocide and genocide. We, we never talk about the genocide of African people. How many people died during chattel slavery? So genocide and enslavement. It is importing Chinese people to, to build railroads, etc. It's stealing lands from people and then saying you can't come in. That's what's happened with Mexican Americans. I'll talk about myself. South Asian diaspora exists around the world because of British colonization and genocide. We say British colonialism, genocide of South Asians. That's what happened. That's why we even exist. It's not like, you know, people want to leave their homeland. Like we create, we create these horrible situations, Central America, Africa, Asia, you know, Af Afghanistan. And then we act like we're white saviors for letting people in. I mean, it's really awful. It's really awful what we do. But, you know, in 65, the Immigration Act, which allowed my family to come over on the backs of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that black people got passed, died getting passed. Uh, and by the way, Congress wanted Europeans to take, we needed science. We, we, were, we, we were lacking in science. We were lacking in doctors, engineers, and they wanted Europeans and, and Europeans didn't want to come. And they were like, wait, what? We're the greatest country on the planet and white Europeans don't want to come. So then they handpicked certain Asian countries with people with certain degrees to come over and serve as, as doctors and engineers. That's what happened, you know? And so that's why we're here. So that's, that's our history. And then they, and they, they slap the moniker model minority on us to ensure that we feel better about treated, being treated like shit and ensure that we treat black people and indigenous people like shit, which we do, which we do happily. And so uh, that's the history. That's the history of the country. That's why it's majority white. That's my beef. Let's start telling the truth. But look at how scary the truth is. Books are being banned. There are actually school districts that have banned books written by black and brown people. Critical race theory is really just telling the truth about our country and how it's all systemic. It's not personal, it's systemic. Look, these people lost their ever loving minds over critical race theory. They don't even know what it is. They actually, critical race theory is taught at like five law schools. I happened to learn it because I was at one of the five law schools. It's not being taught to kindergartners. I mean, do your daughters learn critical race theory, Jess? I don't think so. Sadia, yours didn't, no. Mm. This country is one big gigantic lie. And, and that is what, that, that is the only thing that I stand for is telling the truth. And that also means me telling the truth about having been born and raised to be institutionally anti-black, Islamophobic. Just being honest, uh, we've all come by it honestly. Uh, and if you can't be mm. honest, you know, you're not bad for being human. You're not bad for being white. Um, you know, when it does get bad is when you're refusing to be honest about it. That's when it gets bad. But honesty takes a lot of hard work, Syrah, and not everybody is willing 
to put in that sort of hard work, right? Well, I mean, ask Jess. Or to be uncomfortable. Or to be uncomfortable. I feel like that's a lot of it is like you don't like to be uncomfortable. What makes you uncomfortable, Jess, though? What about this makes you uncomfortable? You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a white woman. I'm, I'm, I'm was raised to be a perfectionist. I never want to say the wrong thing. I never want to look stupid. Um, I always want, you know, I want you to think that I'm nice. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's so important because when you talk about perfection and wanting to be perfect, I think that's inherently what women are expected or they are told to do. So I feel like that's not related to race itself but to your second point to appear nice that's Mm -hmm. something that I've noticed about white women and sometimes I'm confused as to whether they are actually nice or they are pretending to be nice probably a little bit of both probably a little bit of both (laughs) so here's what I'm going to ask you is there anything about this conversation that makes you uncomfortable in this oh that it's being recorded yes yes of course I only spent the last like 48 hours talking to my friend who's in town about how I'm like, oh gosh, I agreed to do this. I'm, I'm an, I'm an agent. I'm usually behind the scenes. Right. So I, 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 I'm, I'm not uh, someone that really likes to be a public figure and it's, it's being recorded. And when I, when I can email something, of course, putting something in writing has its own issues, but when I can email something, I can craft it perfectly. You know, just, but here's what I think. I think it's so important for people like you to talk about this. You know, Saira and I can talk about this day in and day out. But when you talk about it, I'm pretty sure it resonates a lot more with people because you're checking your racism. And it also indicates that there is something wrong here, right? Because the white woman is recognizing that. What should literary agents be mindful of when it comes to power dynamics with their clients, especially white literary agents? Mm-hmm. That is a really good question. Uh, I, I can really only speak to like how I approach agenting, which is very much a partnership. So I, I try to be, I mean, inclusive is not the right word, but I, I try to, to listen a lot more than I talk when I'm working with clients. I try to recognize, I, I talk very deeply with them about their finances, which I don't know if that's true of everyone, um, but I wanna know, I wanna have an idea of, of where they're at because uh, again, traditionally publishing has been for, for wealthier individuals because they can afford to be, get paid a small amount for years and years of work. Um, so I talk a lot about that. Uh, you know, but again, it's like an honest, open conversation. And I do start it off, especially with people of color uh, that I represent. I, I have a, a very clear conversation with them of like, I know that I'm white, right? Like I recognize that I am white. We don't have to pretend like that's not part of this equation here. We don't have to pretend like my client doesn't have to pretend like they don't know I'm white. Like let's just mm. clear the air here. I'm white. <laughs> Surprise, right? <laughs> and so I, I feel like that diffuses things a lot too. Just recognizing your own privilege. Yeah, recognizing my own yeah. privilege. Yeah. 
I love that. I love that. Just is there anything specific you wish more people knew about the literary industry in general? Something that people are not aware Ooh. of. Ooh, that's a that's a good question too. I'm not sure. I mean, everyone knows it's a tough industry. I think people, a lot of people think that they can game the system sometimes. And I don't really think that there is any gaming the system. I think a lot of mm. publishing with books is just pure luck in some regards. Some books succeed and some books don't. And it doesn't necessarily mean that one book was better than the other. I think that's a hard thing to face. Mm-hmm. I want to bring in one more component here of Many people talk about relatability, right? And it ties mm. into this whole narrative around people of color. Oh, you're not relatable. Your stories are not relatable. How true is that? And how do we break away from that myth if it is a myth? I think it's absolutely true that it's a problem and that uh, it often falls on that issue of you know, as a white person, I don't have, like, I mentioned this when I was talking about editing, right? Like, there are definitely mm. dialogue that I have read where I felt like a character came off too harsh with, like, their friend, for example. And I'll have to sit down and talk with the author about, like, why, when I'm coming at it as a white, from a white woman's point of view, like, that's how it, it came off to me. But for her, it was a completely natural friendship between these two people of color, right? Because mm. a white mm. relationship, right? Friendship is not necessarily the same thing as a, as it, for example, to black women being friends, right? It's just different. You know, I think that's just about getting more and more published, more and more on TV, more and more on, on film and on audio that shows a variety of experiences. Hmm. Like the less we move away from our white default, the less that's going to be a problem. Hmm. And how can shared human experiences not be relatable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the way I live my life, okay, it may be a little different but how different can it be in terms of our day-to-day experiences you know kids school work emotions feelings um and i'm not talking in the context of a particular society here just human beings connecting with each other what do you think sarah i think it's so much more macro and that's something that um jess and i've been working through this past year with these these new books that we have coming out over the next few years called the Race to the Truth series. It's not just whiteness in terms of substance, in terms of authors and editors and agents, et cetera. It's the process by which publishing operates. And she touched on that, just touched on that in terms of the money piece. You would you would just cringe if you knew how little money people get paid for books. And when she's saying years and years of work, it's literally years and years of work. So, and then payment plans, right? So. Um, we had a black woman and an indigenous woman working really hard on a really draconian deadline um, on these books, and they weren't even getting their advance because it takes forever. It, you know, we, what we keep hearing, and by the way, I've worked in publishing long enough that it's, it's, every, it's every publishing house. So it's not just this one that we're working with. Well, you know how publishing contracts work. And I was like, but why? And why are you, why are you talking about Black Lives Matter when you're actually having a black woman, single mom, full-time professor work for free right now for you, you know? And guess what happened? They hired a new contracts person and she got her money because we, we pushed for it and we, and we um, you know, mm-hmm. brought that to light. So it's so 
many layers of white supremacy. And it's so elite, like Jess pointed on, it's affluent and white. It's not just affluent and white. It's the most highly educated, and I'm talking about pedigreed. It's people who traditionally, it's just now changing where people are able to move outside of New York City. Who can afford to live on New York City on a, on a agent's or an editor salary? Very few people, generational wealth, or white women who are married to hedge fund or tech folks. I mean, that's the reality. That is the reality. Yeah, absolutely. The reality. And yeah. so it's what I always say is like all of these institutions are white supremacy institutions. The reason publishing is so noxious, particularly so, is books serve as the underlying IP for so much. So, so much of what our kids and what we see on TV comes from books that have been developed into television shows and movies and then exported globally. So what people are watching in India and what people are watching in you know Nigeria, although Nigeria and India are probably bad examples because they have huge um, film industries of their own, but Mexico, Central America, so we export it. So we're literally exporting American white supremacy, which is why when black people you know, travel to these other countries, they'll come back and say, you know, uh, this, this Indian person or Malaysian person thought I was a gangster or like a criminal because that's what we're exporting. We're exporting our bullshit around the world. So that white editor lady in her cubicle at Penguin or at, at Simon & Schuster or HarperCollins who makes very little money and, you know, went to boarding school and went to Harvard and then her dad's paying for her rent, <laughs> she is wielding a tremendous amount of power around the world. So it's not, these are not small things. These are very big things. And there's so many layers, both in terms of process and substance. You know, this is such an important, fun, even introspective conversation for me. And we could go on for another hour, but I know both of you are busy ladies, so I will wrap it up. So in the end, I asked my guests this question. I know Sarah has answered it twice. Um, if you were to define America in a word or a sentence or a phrase, how would you do that? I think Donald Trump. Contradiction? Yeah, the big lie. The big lie. Yeah. He's, he, I, I, you know, I think in some ways he's the perfect character. He is America. Donald Trump is America. And Jess, what about you? How would you define America? I see it as a big contradiction. I want to see the good in America. But I also, on the daily, you see the bad. But I, I, mm. I do think there are good people. I do have some hope. Mm. I can't not mm. have hope. It was such a pleasure to have both of you. And Saira, as always, it's, it's so much fun to hang out. The best hang. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this conversation and if it made you uncomfortable, it's okay. It's good uncomfortable. Sometimes in order for us to dismantle our internalized racism, we have to feel a little uncomfortable. It becomes a necessary imperative, I guess. Now, a lot of times I struggle with the notion that why am I bringing these stories does it even matter? Is anyone even listening? But stories like these are, in a way, affirmation of the kind of work that Immigrantly is doing. We are bringing stories that nobody else is. We have the creative liberty and the will and commitment 
to get you the most honest and refreshingly raw conversations. So if you believe in our walk, if you want us to come back every week, if you want us to sustain our podcast, please support us on Patreon. It's just for going one cup of coffee. You can subscribe for as low as $5 a month and our anniversary is around the corner. So give us a gift, subscribe, write a good review, share it with your friends and family and listen every week so that we can come back to you for incredible stories. Take care. Oh.